Would you please turn to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3. We're going to walk through a few verses here. And uh, we will go to a few other places, but we'll keep coming back to Colossians chapter 3. So and I guess if you had a marker, you could put it in there. One of the bad things about starting here in Colossians chapter 3 is that you really need to go back to chapter 1 verse 1, work your way up to chapter 3. We don't have time to do that tonight, so we'll jump in midstream. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he says in verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ. Now stop right there. If ye then be risen with Christ. Now what does that mean? Well, it means we're born again. Well, yeah, it does, but it's a lot deeper than that. Over in um, Romans, Romans chapter 6, in verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk or live in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also, in the next three words, in the likeness, okay, you can draw a line through those. They should not be there. This is one time when the italicized addition does not help you. I'm serious. He says, just like, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also of resurrection. And when they put the word his, of his resurrection, they got it right that time. So the moment that we get born again, the moment we've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we, being born again, are raised to newness of life. Even so, verse 4, we should walk or live in newness of life. Okay, what life is he talking about? He's talking about the born again life. And the reason it's new is because you never had it until you were born again. And he says, if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death... Well, what does that mean, in the likeness of his death? Well, we didn't really die the way he died. We weren't literally, physically crucified on the cross. If we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also of his resurrection. Meaning, when God raised him from the dead with his own life, the moment we got born again is the moment that God released that same life in us and we were raised from spiritual death. So then, what he's saying here is that you're not in the likeness of resurrection life. You are resurrection life. You have resurrection life. And it's his resurrection life that you have. There's no likeness. There's no imagery here at all. You have the resurrection life in you that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. So we go back then to Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ. Risen with him. If you're risen with Christ. If you have this resurrection life on the inside of you, then here's what you need to do. You need to seek those things which are above. That word seek, it comes from a Greek word, ziteo, I think is how it's pronounced. Nevertheless, um, it's talking about, it's like looking for buried treasure. And if somebody told you 
that there's buried treasure out there in those woods, you'd go out there and you'd be looking. In fact, I'm guessing you might take a few flashlights with you to keep looking throughout the night because you wanted to find that buried treasure. And he says here, seek those things which are above. It literally, that phrase literally gives the impression of you seeking something that is of greater value to you than anything else. Seek those things which are above. What does that mean? Well, simply put, it means seek those things which are above. The fullness of who Christ is. The fullness of who you are in him. The fullness of what you have in him. The fullness of what you can do in him, etc. I mean, on and on it goes. Everything that you have in Christ and everything that Christ has in you. Because, see, the moment you get born again, you don't know everything that you have. You don't know who you are. It's new. So therefore, you have to figure it out. It's just like if we took you and moved you into a foreign country, you'd never been there before, you've got to figure out, okay, what do we do here? And what kind of food do they eat here? You'd have to learn the whole aspects, all the different aspects about living in that country. And he's saying, look, if you're risen with Christ, then seek resurrection things. Seek these things that come from above. Everything about who you are in Christ. This, I guess one way to put this is, um, this is the great failure within the body of Christ. In, in that, we really don't seek those things, I'm, I'm, general terms now, we really don't seek those things which are above. Why is that? I mean, I mean, how do you know that? How do you know we don't? Look at the body of Christ. Look how, how absolutely immature we are compared to what we see in Scripture. We kind of coast along in life and, you know, we have this expectation that God is going to move. Well, he will move, but again, he'll move to the degree that we let him. And you have the, the, the very fact that people have not been seeking those things which are above. This is why you come up with all these really weird doctrines in the body of Christ. Strange things. That's why some people have left this church. Because they don't agree doctrinally with something, but the doctrine they're holding on to did not come from above. It did not originate from God. And he says, if you want to know these things, look, if you're risen with Christ, you're qualified to seek these things. And so he's telling you, seek those things which are above. Those things which originate beyond the scope of this world. He says, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. If you look over in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and begin reading in uh, verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. See that? By grace are you saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show, demonstrate, reveal, give us the knowledge of the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Good works. That's not helping old ladies cross the street. That is not uh, giving somebody that's thirsty a cold drink of water. Anybody can do that. Anyone. Atheists can do this. The good works that he's talking about encompassed the sum total of God's will here on earth. Okay, good works. You want to see good works? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The life of Jesus. The works that I do, you shall do also. But you've got to believe. You have to believe this. And so here we are. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus so that we can perform the works of God in the same way that Jesus performed the works of God here on earth. We're supposed to pick up the torch and carry on. Jesus is in heaven. We're down here. 
It says here that God hath before ordained that we should walk in them, or live according to them, or they should be performed through us, by Him, by Christ Jesus. So if you look back over in Colossians 3, where he says, If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. He's pointing us to the place where positionally we are seated. And this is interesting because the imagery is not, here's God on his throne, and then here's Jesus on his throne, and then there's like, you know, five billion chairs next to Jesus. No, it's one big happy seat. We're seated together in him, we're seated together with him. Now, we can't be seated together with him if we are seated separately from him. So we hold that position, not as Messiah, you know that, but we hold that position of, of being a joint heir with Jesus here in this life. If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. The, I, this verse right here, honestly, this is the answer to all your problems. I mean, to every challenging situation in life, this verse right here is the answer. Money problems, health problems, um, uh, family problems, whatever. This is the answer. Seek those things which are above. That's, that's it, right there. And when Christians... There are some Christians, it, I, don't know, I don't know, you know, they're born again, but it's like they were born to complain. Okay, you know what? You're not doing this verse one here. It's, it's not happening in your life, ever. Well, I don't want to say ever, but it's not happening in your life. Because when you're seeking those things which are above, you know what? You don't have a lot of time to devote to those things which are down below. And he continues, and he, he kind of begins stating this a little bit differently in verse 2 when he says, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your affection on things above. That phrase, set your affection, it comes from a, a Greek word, phroneo. And it means to think, uh, have a mindset. And uh, in this particular verse... You could uh, define it like this. Using your will, make a choice to focus your mind and thoughts on that which is of God. Not on things on the earth. Now, for, for us to do that, it means... Well, it's kind of like what Jesus said over there in Matthew chapter 6. He says, why are you taking thought for all this stuff? I mean, that's what the Gentiles do. That phrase, take thought, worried about. In other words, you set your affection on this stuff as opposed to on God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And you know what? This is describing a growth process. Because the moment that you're born again, Quite honestly, you don't do this. Nobody does. The moment you're born again, you don't do this. You're still focused on things. There's been a change on the inside, but you have to learn how to do this. You have to get to the place of uh, developing spiritually to where the things of God mean more to you than the things on this earth. This is, <laughs> this is where I call into question... Oh, I hope nobody gets offended on this one. This is where I call into question the pursuit of higher education. Now, here's what I mean. There are some people who feel like the only way they can be something is if they keep pressing in to Sama Sama University or this school and that school to get the I, uh, these uh, these degrees, I know somebody. He was kind of like a 
professional student his whole life. He'd go to school, get a degree, wait a while, go back to school, get another degree, wait a while. Go. I mean, I'm talking about somebody like in, going into their 70s doing this. And, okay, well, education is not bad. Learning is a good thing. I get that. But when your affection and your mindset puts that in the forefront of your mind, then you're seeking those things which are on the earth. You're not, you're not pressing into the things of God. You know, one of the worst things in the world, and this is, man, I, this is like a perfect example. Christian parents of Christian kids asking the kid, well, what do you want to do with your life? Well, I don't know. Well, you better figure it out. I mean, you're a junior in high school. You better figure something out. You know, I mean, next year you graduate. You're going to go to college. You better figure out what you want to do. <laughs> now, I doubt if anybody can answer this, but when's the last time you ever heard a parent tell the child, set your affection on things above, not on the earth? When's the last time you ever heard that? Don't anybody respond, but if you're a parent, when's the last time you told your kid that? It's not, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying don't go to college. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, he, I'm this, okay, I'm repeating to you what God is saying right here in his word. Number one, the priority, set your affection on things above. That's the priority. Guess what? In the process of doing that, God can give you the revelation of what he wants you to do in life. He may say, all right, listen, I'm, you're setting your affection on me. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to college and learn how to be an investment counselor so you can raise millions of dollars for the kingdom. That's pretty simple. I want you to go to college and I want you to be a doctor. I want you to be a surgeon so that you can save people's lives and give them more time to accept my son Jesus as Lord and Savior. I mean, I could go on and on with all kinds of examples. I want you to be a mechanic and fix their cars so they can get to church. <laughs> Set your affection on things above first and foremost. Number one, not on things of the earth. And then he says, I'm going to tell you why all of this is so very important. Verse three, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. He says, you're dead. You say, what in the world does that mean? I'm dead. Well, if you look back over, in Romans chapter 6, you pick it up in verse uh, 6. He says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. See, he, he's telling us the way it was with Jesus, but he's using Jesus as the example of how it's supposed to be for us. He says, look, if you're dead with Christ, you died with him. And he, in that he died, he died unto sin once. You died unto sin once in him, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. You're living in him, therefore you should be living unto God. And he says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of, unright of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. You say, what in the world's that got to do with what we just read over there in Colossians? You're dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. You are from, this is God trying to get this across to us. You're dead to this world. Your life is but a vapor. And in the blink of an eye, you're going to be gone. You're going to be out of here. Live unto Christ. You know, I'm standing here today, and according to my driver's license, I'm 65 years old. That's got to be a lie. 
There's no way I'm 65. No way. I know I don't look it. I'm <laughs> Somebody should have said amen right about there. <laughs> oh, boy. I don't feel like I'm 65. I still, re- hey, I can still remember, it wasn't too terribly long ago, I had having dreams, I'm still in high school, trying to find my locker. I don't feel like I'm 65. I don't think I act like I'm 65. <laughs> Sister Martin says, ain't no way you act like you're 65. The point I'm getting at is this. The older you get, the less you feel like you're really that old. And you can remember back, well, I remember back when I was a kid. Of course you do. But guess what? Your life is a vapor. And it's vaporizing. (laughs) He's saying you're dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Meaning, the very essence of your life is hid in a source that is not related to the control of this world. In fact, if you look over in, um, in John, John chapter 17, we're kind of jumping uh, midstream here with what Jesus was praying, but in John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou loved me, before the foundation of the world. Where he says, they may be with me where I am. He's not talking about future tense when I'm up in heaven with you. He's talking about right now. Where was he at that moment when he prayed that, where was he? Here on earth. Where I am right now. He's talking about his position as a child of Almighty God. I want them to understand who they are with me as your child here in this world, here in this earth. Look back over in Colossians. You are dead, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, you are dead, and listen to this, and your life is hid. That word hid, it gives the image of, how can I present this? Okay, here's Christ's life, and here's you, and your life is hid in his life. See this? And as I was meditating on this, I had this, I don't know if you want to call it a vision or what. Anyway, I don't know how things are in the realm of the Spirit. I don't know the fullness of what Satan can or cannot see. I really don't know. A lot of people tell you things. Some of the things they tell you are just plain weird. Don't believe it. But when it comes to a, a Christian... The person is born again. Okay, now that life, it's God's life in us. That resurrection life. And so, when Satan, he's looking at us, and he's looking at God, and he can't tell where God's life ends and our life begins. Because it's all one life. He sees us in union with God. Now we're not deity, we know that. But he sees us in union with God, with Christ. That's what he sees. There's not a separation here, okay? We're one with Christ in God. And that's what he's saying here. You're dead. You're dead just just like God is not controlled by this world or anything in it. Okay, he says you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. This is the perspective he's wanting us to gain. And the more that we gain this, guys, our life here on this earth is really going to be a whole lot easier. Because we begin to see all the stuff that goes on as just a distraction. You know, Jesus, all these things that happened in his life, you know, the, the, the storm while he's in the boat, 
just a distraction. All the people that tried to kill him, just a distraction. All the demons that tried to rise up against, just a distraction. All the everything, just a distraction. You know, it, it wasn't that big of a deal to him. That's because he had his affection set on things above, not on things of the earth. He was aware of the things in the natural life, but that's not where his mind was focused. That's not where his affection was set. And then he says here in verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now what he's talking about, we won't uh, turn back to it, but it has to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it talks about, well, I'll tell you what, yeah, let's do that. Go ahead and turn over. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this part, because there's a lot we could. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 52. Well, verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, that the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? What he's talking about here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, is that when Jesus comes back, that last trump that he's talking about, he's saying, look, we're going to be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, we shall appear with him in glory. Another way to say that we, it would be, we shall appear glorified with him. In the same way he is glorified for all eternity, we shall be glorified the same way he is glorified when he returns in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. There we go. Praise God. <laughs> and what's interesting is that he said, he's telling us, if you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, but Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for your dead and your life is hid with Christ, with Christ in God. Your life is hid there. But, and then he says, because... You need to do verses 1 through 3 because if you do, then when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you also shall appear with him in glory. That's what he's telling you. All right. I don't know if you caught on to this, but what he's saying is, in order for you to experience verse 4, you need to be doing verses 1 through 3. And then he begins giving a warning as to what we could do to miss verse 4. He says, verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You say, what in the world do all those words mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. The word fornication, well, briefly here, briefly. The word fornication that comes from the Greek word pornea, which we get pornography from that. It's talking about lewdness, adultery, um, sexual. Now, here's what's interesting. Sexual sin prohibited under the law of Moses. Now, you think, well, now, hold on there one minute. We're not under the law of Moses. Oh, okay, so then it's okay for a man to lie with a man as he does with a woman. I mean, that was under the law of Moses, was it not? He said, don't do that. D didn't he say that? Under the, okay. Well, does that still in effect today? Yeah. Um, what about the, you know, the hanky-panky with the neighbor's wife? I mean, under the law, he said, don't do that. So, are you telling me it's okay to do that now? No. What about under the law of Moses where he said, don't be hanky-panky with animals? Now, is it, is it okay to do that? No, it is not. So, what about um, no hanky-panky with your wife's mother or your wife's sister? Or your, I mean, this list goes on and on. And that's why 
you don't need a whole lot of description in the New Testament because the, uh, there's a lot of description of sexual sin under the law. We're not released to do that stuff, although some people tell you we are. We're not released to do any of that. And so this word uh, fornication, it's kind of an umbrella word that's talking about basically anything that God has described as sexual sin in Scripture. And you see under the law of Moses, but you also see references to the same things in the New Testament. Then he talks about uncleanness. And the word uncleanness comes from one of those hard-to-pronounce Greek words. And it's talking about lewdness and self-gratification out of lust or impure thoughts. We know what that means. And then unnatural pollution. That's a gross word. Um, It's probably best just to leave that one vague unnatural pollution. But I'm telling you right now, you've got people that are Christians, they're dealing with this uncleanness thing. The whole self-gratification out of lust or impure thoughts. And you all know what I'm talking about. Well, I'm just telling you, God says don't do that. He calls it sin. I've actually had people ask me about that. Will it be a sin if? It's like, uh, well, the Bible says. You know, I'm not giving you my opinion, but the Bible says. And it is... <laughs> doesn't matter if you're married or not. You're not supposed to be self-gratifying out of lust or impure thoughts. That's just the way it is. You're not supposed to be doing that. Well, then this next word, inordinate affection. Now, before we go any further, please understand. We're giving you, I'm giving you, like the very brief overview of these words and what they're talking about. But the inordinate affection... It comes from a Greek word, uh, pathos, meaning wanting, desiring, and lusting for a thing or person to the point of your mind and thoughts being imbalanced. In other words, you, I want that car so bad. I got to have that car so bad. Got to have that house. You're consumed with the I want this thing or this person. You know, you, you, you go to bed at night, you're tormented, not really tormented, you're entertaining. Gotta have, I wanna have, I want it, I want it, I want it. Okay, that's, he calls that inordinate affection. Your desires are out of balance. And it doesn't have to be a sexual thing. I mean, it can be, yeah, but it doesn't have to be. It can be stuff. And The way I've heard some Christians talk, they are guilty of this. Example. Let me just make this... Okay, I'll say it this way. I never had anything growing up, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to have it now. There you go. Inordinate affection. That is exactly what God is talking about. And the next one, he talks about evil concupiscence. You ever wonder where some of these... Writers of the Bible come up with these words. I mean, the evil, I get that one, but concupiscence? Who talks like that? Evil concupiscence. (laughs) Evil, from the word kekos, concupiscence, from the word epithumia. You all knew that. What it means is (laughs) immoral, perverted, unnatural behavior, and the thoughts and fantasies about such. It doesn't have to be simply about sex. It can just... Some of these words, they sound very repetitive. But it's God trying to cover all bases. Let me tell you something. I've learned in the body of Christ, um, man, I have to keep this clean. There are Christians out there they say, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, but we're not really doing that. You know, we're just doing this over here. And you didn't say that this over here was, was bad. You know, what are you, a doofus? Come on. You know good and well that what this over here is included with that over there. It's sin. 
You're just looking for a way to justify it. That's where all this God made me this way stuff has come out. That's where, well, you know what? Love is love has come out. That's where all this stuff's come from. And then the, the last one, the covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, the word, the word idolatry, okay, you pretty much understand that word, but the word covetousness, uh, pleonexia, desires, I'm going to paraphrase this definition, desires for objects, relationships, or money, which could lead to dishonesty, manipulation, fraud, extortion, hoarding, etc., the object, relationship, or money becoming the focal point of the individual's life. I'll give you an example. Many years ago, Kathy and I were attending a church before um, I was ever pastoring. We were attending a church, and I don't remember this, the topic of the sermon, but it had to do, um, the pastor was talking about giving. And he wasn't coming down. I mean, he wasn't beating people over the head with a two-by-four of theology. But he just preventing, presenting from a scripture. Well, when the service was over, you know, I'm kind of listening to some of these people, and there was one man, uh, he did not like that sermon at all. He was angry. And it was in his voice, too. And he wasn't making a big scene, but he's talking to somebody else, and I heard this. And, and one of the things he said was, to justify his lack of giving the way he could give. He said, I work hard for my money. And I'm thinking, well, most people do. In other words, because I sweat to earn my paycheck, then I am no longer responsible for giving the way that maybe I should. Only he wouldn't use the, the phrase, maybe I should. This whole thing, the covetousness, man, I'm telling you, this one, it's like a silent problem in the lives of many Christians. Because they, they have these desires. They, okay, they, they see other people living a certain way. I want that. I want to live like that. That's what I want to be. You know, I want to have a car like that. Okay, why? There are certain cars or trucks or, you know, whatever's out there, I mean, that I just, I won't own. I just won't. But what I will want is something that's very good and reliable that I know I can trust that has a good rating and it doesn't matter to me what the sticker on the car says. I mean, I, I don't care the brand. I want something that I know is going to last. There was a... I remember watching this. There was this guy down in Louisiana, I think it was. Um, he had this Toyota Corolla. And uh, word got out that he had racked up miles like you wouldn't believe. And so this TV program sent a, a crew down to him, and they said, we're going to film your odometer as it turns over from... 999,999 miles to all zeros representing 1 million miles. And they put that on TV. You talk about amazing. Now, I'm not saying you've got to go buy a Toyota Corolla. Don't misunderstand me. The point I'm making is, is it, I, want, I want reliable for me. I want reliable in a house that I live in. I remember I was in, I worked for a couple of construction companies, and uh, we built, I, I did like office stuff and so forth, but I also went out to job sites. And we built houses that were very expensive, and we did not uh, cut back on the quality. We used the, the best of the best, if you will. And uh, we pointed our customers to... Uh, the the best quality of this, that, and everything else. To the point to where now we can, Kathy and I, I we be driving by a housing project where homes are being built, and I can just look at, I can say, there's no way I would want one of those houses because I can just look at it and tell you they're not being built as well as they could be built. But you know, you don't pull over and yell, "Hey, you're building junk over there." You. <laughs> 
the point is, the covetousness, when, you're, when your affections are set on things above, you're not going to have this covetousness. And the reason he says it's idolatry is because that, whatever it is, the, the object, the relationship, the money, whatever it is, you have elevated that to a, to a higher place in your life than what Jesus occupies. And that's why he calls it idolatry. Well, here's what's interesting. He says, verses 1 through 3, here's, here's the way it ought to be. And verse 4, he's saying, if, it's, if your life is, verses 1 through 3, then verse 4, that's going to be you. However, between now and verse 4, you better mortify your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And just in case you're wondering why you should mortify those things, verse 6, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Do you know what this is talking about? Eternity in a lake of fire. Do you realize what he's telling us? He's saying, if you don't, mortify, if you don't do verse 5 mortification, and you let those things become a part of your life, then you know what? You are facing the wrath of God. The grace of God, His mercy, His forgiveness and all. I mean, he, that grace... Okay, you ever heard people talk about a grace period? Yeah, where do you think that came from? It came from Scripture. Because the grace of God gives you time to repent. And quite frankly, from what I can tell, that, that repentance grace period is a whole lot longer than what a lot of us Christians want to give people. And he says, look, you can't incorporate these things in your life. This cannot be who you are. You can't be doing the verse 5 things. It can't be you. Okay, you're, You have to be verses 1 through 3 if you want verse 4. And if you do choose to live verse 5, not mortifying, not putting those things to death in your life, then you know what? You could end up facing the wrath of God just like the lost people. And then he says, he reminds us, he says, verse 7, in the which ye also walked some time when you lived in them. In other words, he's saying, remember when you were lost? Remember how you lived back then? Remember some of the things that you did, the way you acted, your behavior, whatever? I mean, you may not have been doing everything in verse 5, but you know what? <laughs> Don't forget how saved you became when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Then he says, along with this, verse 8, Now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. You say, okay, well, what does that mean? Briefly, the word anger. It's anger, uh, to paraphrase the definition, anger with a mental desire for vengeance or punishment. You believe what that guy did? Pulled right out in front of me. I hope he has a wreck. Oh, I'm not going to cause it, but I hope he has a wreck. Like five flat tires. But he's only got four. I don't care. <laughs> Get four. Fix one. They all go flat again. Whatever. I don't care. That's what this anger is talking about. <laughs> Remember when, well, who was it, James and John? Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? And Jesus said, oh, you guys, come on. You don't know what spirit you're of. In other words, no, 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 we're not doing that. What's interesting is that Jesus probably could have. <laughs> he said, no, 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 we don't do that. What I find even more interesting is those guys thought they could. Even though, okay, wrath. Thumos, it's, it's an action birthed out of anger. In other words, you're no longer just wishing it upon the person. You're no longer going to be all kinds of, ha you know, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but boy, am I glad it did on the inside. You know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> did you hear? Oh, it was so wonderful. Oh, I mean, we got to pray for them. <laughs> and the wrath is when, you know, you just do it. Instead of saying, oh, I feel like beating the snot out of them, you do it. I mean, you just, you just do something. And then this word malice, this is a, an interesting word, 
to paraphrase it or to try to create a, an image, it is the opposite of God's character qualities of mercy, grace, compassion, etc., and so forth. One way to say that, or, or a part of a way to say this, would be you know, like holding a grudge and not moving on. Well, you know what? That's malice. And God says, put it away. God is saying, God is saying, so what? They did, they said, what? What's that? They didn't sing your favorite song? What's that? You know, somebody sat in your seat? What's that? You know, whatever. He's saying, let it go. Let it go. Man, that word malice, that fits into a lot of stuff that's going on right now on social media for the politicians, the liberals, what Christians are doing. There's a lot of malice coming out of Christians. And God is saying, this is wrong. Yeah, but pastor, if you paid any attention to this, I have paid attention. And it's still wrong. Hey, guys, listen. Their life is but a vapor. And what you don't understand, do you, have you ever sat and thought about somebody spending eternity in a lake of fire. Have you ever really thought about that? Is that really what you want for, for these evil politicians? I mean, really? You want them burning in torment with never an opportunity to, to be delivered? I mean, seriously? Because if that's really what you want, then I'm telling you what, you're getting close to, to separating yourself from God for all eternity. Because that is not, the, listen, that's not the heart of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whether you like him or not, whosoever, call upon the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. I remember Pastor Dave Roberson was talking about this, and he said, you know what, if Adolf Hitler, right before his last breath, if he called upon Jesus, he's born again. And do you know there were people that gave him all kinds of blank over that? Yeah. How dare you say... Wait a second. That, the Bible says, whosoever, whosoever, that's the word of God. And he says, put away you know, the, the anger, the wrath, the malice, and then this blasphemy. Now, this word blasphemy... It means what you think without meaning what you think. In other words, it's not, a, not you know, Jesus said, you know, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the verbal abuse of others, such as gossip, slander, evil reports, love covereth a multitude of sins. Okay, when you're truly walking in the love of God, you're not going to be repeating what other people are doing. You're not going to do it. That's gone on here. Well, really, all these things to a certain point that God's identifying, people have, here's my, here's my confession, people have overcome all of these in this church. That's my confession. And I hope it's right. But this whole thing of the, um, the blasphemy, it's the evil reports, it's the slander, it's repeating a matter. And in Proverbs, it talks about don't do that. You're not supposed to be repeating these things. And then the whole thing of the filthy communication, he says, you know, um, get the, put the filthy communication out of your mouth. Very simply stated, it's foul language. <laughs> I find it interesting how some people want to justify using foul language because everybody else does it. Well, you know, when I was raised, everybody in the house, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, they all blankety-blank this and blankety-blank this and blankety-blank-blank-blank everything else. That's just how I was raised. Okay. But you have a new daddy now. And he says, put it out of your mouth. You can't be going around BSing this and blankety-blanking that. You can't be doing that. This is the Word of God. It's not my opinion, guys. This is the Word of God. And I've encountered Christians, boy in church, I mean, their language is honey-sweet. But you get away and uh, cover your ears. <laughs> and you, ever, <laughs> you know that phrase? Well, some people will say, well, you know, that's just, you know, blank and blanky. You know, pardon my French. 
It's like, that wasn't French. I understood every word. <laughs> Les stink. <laughs> now look, let me, let me, God's grace is such to where if this is not an endorsement, but God's grace is such to where if there is an occasional oops, all right, the lightning bolts aren't going to fall. But you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. And we, we need to press into God to the point to where we don't even have the occasional oops. You know, seriously. Well then, look at this. And then he says, verse 9, lie not one to another. <laughs> Remember the other day I taught about, you know, fear can cause you to lie. Well, he says here, lie not to one another, seeing that you put off the old man with his deeds. Lying is a contradiction to the very nature of God because God cannot lie. So he says, lie not to one another, seeing that you put off the old man with his deed. The old man is dead, crucified with Christ. In verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Renewed in knowledge. What does that mean? What that means is, Seek those things which are above. Keep pressing into God through the word, through prayer, through the worship. Keep seeking those things which are above, uh, are above and renew or constantly increase your knowledge, your understanding of who you are, who he is and so forth, so that you become what these verses are talking about. This is your life. And... In the process, you are fully prepared for verse 4. When Christ appears, when Christ who is our life appears, we will appear with him in glory. Praise the Lord. I am looking forward to that day.